The Video Insiders is the show that makes sense of all that is happening in the world of online video, as seen through the eyes of a second-generation Kodak nerd and a marketing guy who knows what iframes and macro blocks are. And here are your hosts, Mark Donegan and Dror Gill. Well, welcome back to another super exciting episode of The Video Insiders, and I am here with my co-host, Dror Gill. Dror... What are you doing these days? What are you up to? Oh, we're excited for, for the Emmys this month. You know, we, the, the ceremony is taking place. So your kids now think you're actually famous. Oh, yeah. This is so cool. You know, my dad's got an Emmy. An and, Emmy. Uh, you know, <laughs> and he's going to walk on, on the red carpet now. Of course, it's all virtual. You know, for us techie, geeky people, this is this is about as Hollywood as we can get, right? So yeah. this is... <laughs> That's as close as we can get to Hollywood. And how about you? Because uh, last time you told us about a walking desk that just arrived. So how is it with the walking desk? I absolutely love it. And uh, I, I spend about three, about three days a week. Uh, I'm actually really walking on it, but each session uh, I get in six to eight miles. I'll tell you for me, and I hear this universally, it's a creativity boost. Uh, I just find when I'm, when I'm walking on it and I'm doing creative slash analytical type tasks. So where I need to be able to kind of move back and forth between my left and right brain, I don't know. I'm, I'm more effective. I can feel it. Wow. I really can. So <laughs> compared to when I'm just sitting at my desk. So oh, that's amazing. I can highly, highly advise all of our listeners check out a walking desk. So Drawer, I am really excited for today's interview. We are talking to Ryan Jesperson from Millicast. And uh, Ryan, first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Mark, and thanks, Dror. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be on the show. And uh, it's funny you're mentioning the Engineering Tech Awards. We, we built a, a solution called Evercast, which has been used a lot in the uh, post-production and, and uh, production industry over the last couple of years. And similarly, that uh, solution actually won an Engineering Emmy Award as well. So Great. Congratulations to you as well. Congratulations. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we're really excited to talk with you today. And, uh, you know, let's just start. Tell us about yourself. Give us the baseball card of uh, who Ryan Jesperson is and how did you get to Millicast and what are you doing these days? Absolutely. So um, first of all, I think a lot of you are going to have a hard time placing my accent. So I grew up in southern Spain and um, I went to a British school growing up. My mother's American. I've lived in America now almost 20 years. So all those things put together, it gives me this kind of bastardized accent, um, which which explains my roots. Um, and then as far as the video industry, I, I kind of ended up almost randomly in the video industry doing uh, motion graphics and post-production work, compositing, things like that, and ended up migrating to the world of digital video and streaming in its infancy um, back in the early 2000s, and now have worked for Wowzer for about five plus years and migrated into the WebRTC space after leaving Wowza. And that's what got me into Cosmos Software, which is a parent company of Millicast. And Millicast is a product that we built on WebRTC. So that's really where the focus of my career has been the last uh, three, three plus years. You are affiliated or who owns who or what's the relationship there? 
Yeah, so Cosmos Software is a company based out of Singapore, founded by WebRTC experts, and they they were kind of a professional services company, building and and um, doing kind of scalability tests for WebRTC platforms and so on. As an example, we used to kind of advise Apple Safari on their implementation of WebRTC and help them with their testing. And then we just saw this this kind of proliferation of WebRTC products that were getting built around a technology that we happen to specialize in, and that's what spurred us to create the Millicast platform. As a service, which is really in essence like a WebRTC CDN that allows you to scale WebRTC beyond the traditional kind of peer-to-peer -peer use case. So Millicast is a service of Cosmos Software? It's not a spin-off? Exactly. It, it, it's a wholly owned product and service of Cosmo. And um, the way you are using WebRTC is uh, somewhat different than the uh, standard use case, the most common use case, which is for communication, you know, video conferencing, etc., And in your case, you're actually using the protocol for uh, enabling uh, low latency uh, streaming. So what are the main applications um, for which low latency is, is needed? I know it's a very hot topic lately and everybody wants to reduce the latency, but you know, for some application, it doesn't really matter. Where is it uh, crucial to have low latency when you're streaming video and not uh, communicating? Yes, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there. I think WebRTC was founded as kind of a, a voice over IP, a VoIP or peer-to-peer -peer use case when it first launched. Um, and it was limited to very few concurrent viewers. And, and I think there was a negative perception in the traditional broadcast and streaming industry that this is a technology built for you know web-enabled peer-to-peer workflows for video and audio, right? And, and it was always associated with poor web quality and, and webcam, and it's really not for the broadcast industry. And, and probably the worst yet for any who comes from the broadcast world hits requires you to code right to be able to use it and I think that that alone is the reason you know those of us who come from traditional broadcast and video we want to kind of plug in an SDI into a nice port uh, have a hardware encoder send that in we don't have to worry about anything under the hood WebRTC I think scares a lot of people off because of the fact that it does require um, if you're going to build some kind of a solution it requires a little bit of coding to be able to enable it but I think what's happened is is because It was built to be um, over a protocol that prioritizes latency over anything else, even over resiliency with, with having to wait for packets. If a packet doesn't come through for whatever reason, it, it, it just ignores it and it continues on because latency is the priority. So I think it's very different than all of the other traditional streaming protocols we've been using, especially on the contribution side, where we try to prioritize you know, packet loss over anything else. But what it does allow a use case is to be able to get to a sub-second workflow that can promote things like interactivity that we've never really even been able to do in the broadcast and streaming world, even over the traditional satellite or terrestrial means, right? We've at the very best been able to get to about three or five seconds worldwide um, when we're watching the World Cup or we're watching the Super Bowl. So the fact that there's a protocol now that can get a sub-second latency around the world, it just opens up these, these innovative use cases that I think are paving the way for kind of a new revolution in the streaming and broadcast industry. And, and you know, some of those are quite obvious. And I think WebRTC and, and real-time streaming has been associated with live auctions, with um, betting and gambling, things that really for, for you know, the very purpose of the business requires you to eliminate fraud or eliminate um, any kind of a delay. But what's happening now is as we try to engage more with virtual audiences and even pair those with hybrid events, There's no other technology that I think is really well suited to be web native and also sub-second in, in its design to enable those interactive workflows. And I think that that's quite a compelling use case. 
Yeah, it really is. And I noticed on your website, there's the logos, uh, NFL, NBC, CBS, Prime Video, pretty impressive. And, you know, those are all traditionally tied to, again, your very traditional streaming protocols and approaches. Can you characterize, like, how are, how are these organizations using WebRTC and, and your solution? So when we first launched Millicast, which has now been kind of commercially available for a couple of years, uh, really the biggest customer base that we saw, especially with the pandemic and a lot of broadcast um, studios having to close down and they're having to enable kind of consumer grade workflows over the public internet to replace professional commercial grade equipment in in studio, right? And the only way to do that was by enabling things through a web browser, which is the tool we use every day to to interact with the internet. So the fact that WebRTC was built for that, we realized at Cosmo, we built this, helped build this platform called Evercast. And there's a few others in the industry that are remote collaboration production workflows or post-production workflows. So whether you're monitoring uh, real-time cameras inside of a a broadcast studio like NBC or or HBO or, or even the NFL, or, or ESPN, um, also for the production of like TV and films where they want to do daily reviews and do a live collaboration, review the live footage, um, be able to do post-production for color grading and sound editing and, and even motion graphics. All of those things, we, you know, we built this Evercast tool that allowed you to use the browser as a way to share your screen and collaborate in real time with other people who had cameras and, and microphones enabled to review that footage. So that very quickly became our, our main domain was the kind of broadcast and post-production space. And you know, to this day, we still have every major studio in Hollywood and post-production house in Hollywood and in other countries as well. But that I think is kind of our established base. And from that, we've seen these other things emerge now, which are more tied to other people trying to engage with content in real time. So the NASA use case is, a, is an interesting one because the Mars rover obviously made international news this year. And what they wanted to do is instead of having to send a, a feed over a satellite or over terrestrial means it could be quite expensive through a TV head end, they ended up sending raw web RTC high quality 4K feeds to agencies like the Associated Press and Thomson Reuters that could grab those feeds and then be able to move them into either digital um, production or broadcast means or um, put it out over traditional satellite and, and terrestrial. So it, as, a, as a kind of contribution mechanism, WebRTC has become really a, a predominant player um, in that space, replacing kind of RTMP and even SRT workflows, right, with our other protocols that are offering those means. I, I think the biggest differentiator to kind of answer your question on the protocol side is, you know, you are seeing a lot of, you know, contribution protocols that have been around for a while, RTMP obviously being the most predominant because um, it's been around for almost 20 20 plus years, uh, SRT has kind of come up and is is um, enabling those kind of contribution workflows. You have proprietary ones like Zixi, right, as well, that also provide that. I think the biggest differentiator for me for, with WebRTC is not only does it solve the contribution side, it can also solve the distribution side. So SRT can be great for contribution, and if you're using kind of an encode-decode model where you have a high-vision encoder, Makito on one side, and a high-vision decoder on the other side to output to SDI, that can work. But what if you actually want to serve that content to people who are consuming it through a web browser. Now you have to relegate yourself to using a very latent protocol like HLS that really isn't built for interactivity. And I think that's where WebRTC can offer that kind of peer-to-peer at scale to kind of really give us these new workflows that are quite interesting. So it's peer-to-peer end-to-end with the same protocol uh, versus uh, SRT or Zixi, which can only be used for contribution. And then you 
you switch to a different protocol when you distribute. Exactly. And, and I think you're seeing, you know, NDI, I think, has really become something that, you know, was quite buggy, even in the local network environment. And now you're seeing NDI clouds emerge and uh, services like BirdDog Cloud that use NDI as kind of a native uh, contribution and even distribution for production purposes. Um, but the problem with NDI, SRT, even Zixi is none of these are actual web standards. So as we're trying to use the web to consume this content, Uh, we can't really go back to the days of Flash where we have to use a proprietary third-party plugin you know, to actually be able to view content. By using a native protocol, which WebRTC is an IETF and W3C standard, it allows us to use not just our web browser and Chrome and Firefox and Mac and Windows and Linux, we can now use our mobile devices as well to do this on the fly. Um, and I think that is, is really the biggest differentiator between using a web standard and using something that's a proprietary workflow. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I'm wondering, um, in this world of uh, varying network conditions, and you know we all we all know about traditional HLS and Dash adapted bitrate schemes. What does that look like in WebRTC? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it's one where I think once again, WebRTC has a very clear path to help with things because it is, You know, once again, prioritizing latency and you can serve a packet loss or have packet loss in your streaming, um, it's great to have a model that can account for that, right? And prioritize varying bandwidth conditions, both at the encode side as well as at the decode side and make sure that we can support you know, ABR, adaptive bitrate type use cases. I think even before we talk about that, I think a lot of people think that there are a lot of issues with WebRTC when it comes to firewall um, issues. And to be honest, like even just with our Millicast platform, uh, we do use what's called a turn server that can actually change the port um, to a, a port 80. Um, so ports that are obviously open over firewalls. It's very rare that we see any kind of, of usage with turn, um, even on our network. So you know, most WebRTC solutions nowadays use a turn service like Twilio or, or others. But to be honest, like on our platform, it's about 2% of our volume of our, of our audience. And it's very restricted networks that offer that. WebRTC is so used now from things like Google Meet to any kind of Skype for web or Teams for web. Anything that uses the web as the native um, client, uh, it's using WebRTC. So those port numbers are usually wide open on most networks these days. So it doesn't really become an issue. I think the part that's revolutionary when it comes to WebRTC is, is because it uses the web as, as its kind of default method to, to communicate and to encode and decode, um, a variable encode parameter or functionality was built into WebRTC at, at the, from the get-go. So what that means is, is you know, let's say you are using a, the web client, like a JavaScript broadcaster, right, to be able to encode. Um, it will detect your bandwidth and be able to adjust the bandwidth to accommodate varying network conditions. Now, that might be great for someone who's, you know, has a web call and they're in their car or they're on a train and they're going from cell phone tower to cell phone tower. But what about someone who's a broadcaster who really does care about that kind of differing encode, right? That's where the broadcast industry starts rolling their eyes a little bit at WebRTC. I think that the thing that would amaze most people is the fact that WebRTC is completely codec agnostic and there is no resolution or bandwidth limit built into WebRTC. We have over, with, with a lot of our broadcast customers, they're doing 4K and 8K workflows 
with next generation codecs that are actually enable them to do you know Dolby quality um, like Dolby Vision and and really high quality contribution over over um, network connections that allow for that kind of resolution. So there are ways you can force higher quality um, over WebRTC, and in in fact you know we have our own kind of OBS fork, OBS Studio fork that we added LibWebRTC to, that allows you to kind of force a higher constant bit rate so you can control that. And, and I think we're going to get into that conversation of trying to bring in kind of uh, industry standard hardware encoders to be able to enable those workflows. The, the final thing I'll, I'll kind of mention on the codec side, because I think this is the most important thing when it comes to quality, and if there's one thing that I think is, is kind of preventing the broadcast and streaming industry from getting adopting WebRTC, is this perception that quality is an issue with WebRTC. And what, what I'll just mention is, you know, on our platform with our CTO, Sergio, um, he was able to get AV1 SVC uh, working in browser with a, a browser encoder, right, through through Google Chrome earlier this year. Now, what's crazy about that is when you look at, you know, any encoder pretty much under $5,000 on the market right now, I don't even think there's one out there that can do AV1 SVC. And what's important about SVC is, is the next generation of codecs, AV1 and H.265, can enable SVC. Everyone does it by default. But what SVC does is this idea of scalable video coding. I think what's amazing about scalable video coding is it makes adaptive bitrate obsolete and it makes simulcasting obsolete. Instead of sending one high quality, um, let's say 4K or 1080p feed into a traditional origin server like a Wowza or a Mux or, or something like that, and then the, the origin server is responsible for creating the adaptive bit rates and sending that ABR ladder through an HLS or a dash or something else, what SVC does is it has the intelligence to be able to encode the video with the spatial resolutions of the lower qualities already in the same feed without add adding any additional bitrate. That's a revolution that the entire broadcast and streaming industry still hasn't adopted, and it's been around now for a couple of years. WebRTC is the only protocol that's enabling this because it's codec agnostic. And the reality is the browser is still not really powerful enough, or the machines running the browser aren't powerful enough to do it, but we have AV1 SVC working in browser. How do we not have it working with hardware encoders already, right? And even with H.265, and, and the reason it's not working with H.265 is because RTMP is a limiter and doesn't allow for SVC through that protocol. It's, it's a 20 plus year old protocol that doesn't enable these new workflows. And I think once people kind of become aware that this is possible, it totally flips the model on, on edge, right? And what's crazy about the way, the way SVC works is when it does deliver to an end user, is it has the intelligence to be able to only get the spatial resolution that's needed. It, it is adaptive bitrate without having to put in the, the origin server mechanism or the transcoding in the cloud. Um, the final thing I'll say on that, is that with the, the ability to, to do this, because we don't have to process the media at any point during that pipeline with SVC, it means we can actually do true end-to-end -end encryption from encode to decode. And this for broadcast studios, for Hollywood studios, for pretty much anyone in enterprise, in government, in military, in EDU use cases, you protect the media from point to point. It removes the liability of anybody who's on that pipe. It literally cannot get um, hacked. And instead of what happens currently where you send one high quality resolution, you have to decrypt that, put that into the ABR ladder and then re-encrypt with a DRM packaging tool. That's not true end-to-end -end encryption. There's a point in the middle where that gets decrypted. I think once we can do end-to-end -end encryption with SVC, 
now we're revolutionizing how we deliver video across, um, not just across the internet, but across any pipe. So with SVC, instead of uh, creating a ladder of different encodes, you have a single encode that includes within the single stream uh, several different uh, resolutions, can be also different uh, frame rates and bit rates, and, and then you encode all of them at the contribution point and can encrypt them when you're doing the contribution. And it just goes over the internet um, and the client selects from this um, uh, stream the right uh, resolution that can be supported based on network conditions and, and the client decrypts so nothing happens in the middle. Exactly. Now, now, let me just say that the, the SVC piece of it, whether it's with AV1 or with H.265, is separate from the end-to-end -end encryption. The end-to-end -end encryption you can add over whatever protocol you want to wrap that inside of, right? Right. Uh, but but it, it does enable that that workflow. You know, we've had H.265 and HEVC and, and AV1 now for, for a couple of years, and the decode side of it, especially with AV1, is already predominant. Like, you already have YouTube um, encoding a lot of the VOD content with AV1. Real-time encoding with AV1 has been an issue, but VOD encoding with AV1's already been around for a very long time, and most of the content going across, I think it's YouTube and a few other platforms, uh, we're already decoding. It's built into our smart TVs, into our mobile devices, into our, our browsers and our, our devices. So the decode side's already there. Um, really, we have to work on getting the hardware encoders and software encoders in the market to start adopting AV1. I'm going to throw them under the bus here for a bit. I think the industry's got a little bit lazy with just being so used to RTMP and that being a great protocol, by the way, that, that's ushered in this era of streaming. But we got a little bit lazy about what the next generation is. And, and I think the next generation is now when it comes to these workflows. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and uh, it's very interesting that you spent so much time talking about SVC. So um, I have direct experience with AV1 and, and SVC, and it, you are absolutely correct. It works. Temporal scalability is really super powerful. And there are solutions out there um, that, as you say, enable very, very high quality. You know, it's adapted bitrate without um, having to go create all these different bitrate ladders and, and do what we're all used to in HLS. Uh, and it really is effective. And so I'm, you know, I'll just put an exclamation point, I guess, on your point that WebRTC is not sort of a low quality workflow and protocol. And, you know, it, it is absolutely for the highest quality uh, video streaming uh, workloads uh, that are out there and, and actually technically can be and often is a superior solution. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just add to that, Mark, that I think one of the parts that gets ignored is, you know, obviously using a newer codec, we're using newer technology, we can do a similar quality or, or equal quality at a much lower bitrate to begin with. That's even before we add the SVC component of it. The other part that I think is very compelling is we always talk about, you know, what we can do at the very high levels. Okay, AV1 can allow us to do 4K and 8K and go up and up. I'm actually going to give you an argument that most people ignore. You know, we're very fortunate that we are, you know, I split my time between Europe and the US. And of course, you go to Japan, you go to Korea, you get these huge, like, um, you know, home bandwidth connection. It's common to have, you know, half a gig or a gig of connection in your in your home. But think about the largest 
audiences in the world are in countries where bandwidth is still a major concern. What AV1 allows you to do, and H.265 for that matter, I'm not going to get into the argument of, of one versus the other, but what newer codecs and SVC allow you to do is access a community through video that is, is currently doesn't have a ton of options when it comes to, to receiving content over traditional streaming means. That, I think, is a very compelling argument. Think about all the people in Africa, all the people in the you know, Indian subcontinent, um, in, in a lot of the world, South America, where bandwidth is not a, a, a readily available commodity at very high levels. Now you can start using these newer codecs to get to devices where you are remote and still be able to monetize your content. That, I think, is a very compelling argument that nobody talks about either. And I think, whether it's WebRTC or not, but I do think with AV1 SVC, it allows you to get into those markets as well. Yeah, I think that's, that, that's a very interesting point. Uh, but when you talk about the protocols for distribution and you're replacing uh, you know, HLS and Dash, which are now commonly used as the distribution protocols, uh, you're replacing that with WebRTC on the distribution side as well. What are the trade-offs? Because I know that when you're using those HTTP-based protocols, you can enjoy you know, um, everything that the standard web server does with HTTP data. You, know, you, you get scalability, you get caching, and, and all of that. And now when you're using a, a non-HTTP protocol, uh, are you giving anything up in terms of these advantages? Yeah, so I, th I think you're definitely hitting on a point where there's a lot of uh, slow adoption in WebRTC because of what you're bringing up. So I think with, with HLS and Dash and, and HTTP streaming protocols in general, they were obviously built to, to serve a need. And I think it has ushered in, again, this, this kind of proliferation of being able to scale content very affordably. Um, you know, CDNs have loved it because for them, being able to throw resources at scaling HTTP-based uh, stateless files is very economical, right? But but that's become such a commodity that um, it's pretty much a race to zero for a lot of CDNs. You know, like you can there's some some deals you can get like a cent a gig now, right? For through large CDNs and so on. The, the problem is is that those protocols solve the need of the time, and it still solves the need of 90% of the use cases in live streaming, where you have the Super Bowl and you're doing it over IP and you want to deliver it to huge audiences, scale it through edge caching all around the world. It's great for that, and it still is great for that. But when you want to add any form of interactivity, whether it is betting and gambling, whether you want to create virtual audience engagement and you have people receiving those packets at different times, okay, there are some tools out there that people are trying to synchronize through the client-side SDKs, trying to synchronize content across different viewers. But the reality is in order to do all of that, add any kind of synchronization, you're still adding latency to the equation because you have to make sure that everyone can catch up to the right time. Like when you're doing watch parties. Exactly. So, so you know, the whole thing that we've all done where you're watching a Champions League game in, in England and a bar down the street is watching over satellite and you're watching it over IP and they're celebrating and you 10 seconds later see what just happened, right? That There's a frustration where that is... is something we can live with when we're consuming content at home and we, we have maybe a 20, 30 second gap in between. It's not going to really kill anyone, right, to, to have that. But the minute you try to engage that same person virtually in his home with a friend of his in another home over different ISP connections over the dirty public internet, now you can't create any kind of interactive format over those protocols. And of course, there's a lot of development going on with LLHLS and, and trying to find ways to almost hack the HLS spec to get it lower and lower and lower and lower. 
but that's not really what it was built for at any point. And, and I'd, I'd be hard-pressed to think that we're ever going to get to LLHLS where it gets below three seconds. And even with that, it's very buggy because what it's trying to do is trying to create a buffer. And now what you're trying to do is remove that buffer. So what happens when you need that buffer? It's just going to create a hor horrible um, experience for users, right? So it's just a protocol not designed for real-time interactivity or real-time delivery. And, and I think that's true of that. You know, as we talk about scalability, and it's a real issue with WebRTC, it's it's not trivial to scale it in any any way. We knew we could do it, and, and I don't want to give our company too much of a sales pitch, but there's only a handful of people in the world who are WebRTC experts who knew how to scale this in any kind of a real way. The reason a lot of CDNs and streaming service providers have not invested in WebRTC is because it's gone from this kind of origin server model where you have one Argent server that does the transcoding and you deliver the ABR ladder to a stateless CDN, which is cheap and easy to scale. And now it reverts back to the old simulcast model of RTMP and Flash, which was 15, 20 years ago, where you have to create multiple encodes and then create an edge network to deliver it all. That edge network needs to be stateful, where you need to have a connection to the client, to the, the person viewing, and then you need to spin up new servers as that grows. That's a model that a lot of CDNs and streaming service providers don't want to return to because the economies of scale are much more expensive than trying to build a stateless CDN through HTTP. However, what we've seen at the at our company is this this is what's crazy is as the Akamai's and the Limelights and the, the CDNs of the world are doing this race to zero for commoditizing gigabits, our average per gigabit cost on our network is over 40 cents per gigabit because you're adding a value that isn't possible with the other stateless form of media. And that is of a huge value to a lot of people for a lot of, that interactivity piece creates engagement. That engagement has a monetary value to it that I think a lot of people are trying to tap into. I think that's also a very interesting thing that is important to note of the commercial aspect of this, not just the technical. The final thing I'll say that of why the broadcast and streaming industry is reluctant to accept WebRTC is I always get this in, in a lot of my commercial talks is like, oh, can WebRTC do you know, closed captioning? Can it do um, this and can it do that? And of course not. WebRTC is still so new when compared to RTMP or HLS or even Dash that have been around for over a decade. They're much more mature protocols that have a lot more features built into it. With WebRTC, a lot of it, it's left up to the impl implementer to put things over a data channel. And then you have to make sure that the clients, the two clients can talk to each other and perceive that data channel to add additional things like closed captioning and so on. That's still a very new topic with WebRTC and that's why you're not seeing um, a lot of people adopt that for any kind of mass distribution because it is lacking in features and a lot of that has to be developed by um, the users who are implementing solutions. But, but bottom line, if you're trying to build interactivity and engagement, I think WebRTC is the best suited for it because it is web native and it doesn't require any kind of a third party player or plugin to be able to make it work. Are you seeing any signs, Ryan, that this work is going to be done, you know, um, to support these features that are needed in broadcast? Yeah, so I think, I think you know, to kind of, um, you know, talk about the topic that I think we started talking about earlier, we were talking about kind of standard signaling that we're trying to build into WebRTC, and we've done this as a movement and trying to get this approved by the IETF. That's one of the committees that, that kind of mandates what is the standard for internet protocols, right, and communication over the internet. So... Before I dive into what WIP is and, and what it's trying to do, WebRTC was 
purposely built to be extremely scalable, that if you built your own, and I mean scalable as far as deploying it, when you build a WebRTC solution, a lot of it is purposefully not designed and it's left, left up to you as the implementer to decide how you want to implement it. And that's true of how you use the data channel in WebRTC. The media transport layer is pretty standardized. And the way we, can, we, we actually broadcast the, the video and the audio over the media transport layer is pretty standardized. But the other part that also hasn't been defined is the signaling layer of how two disparate uh, platforms or tools communicate to each other over WebRTC. So both the signaling layer and the data channel layer still have a lot of kind of standardization that probably needs to come to kind of standardize how a lot of these kind of value-added features are added into WebRTC. So, so let me start with what we're trying to do with WIP. And what WIP stands for is WebRTC HTTP ingest protocol. And for those of you traditional, like know about RTMP, it's really just trying to do an RTMP URI for WebRTC. So you know when you connect, let's say your Teradek cube encoder, right? And you want to connect it to Wowza, to Wowza Cloud or to Mux or to YouTube Live. All you have to do is put in one simple RTMP URL with your stream ID and whatever authentication you have. And just like that, that Teradek cube encoder can talk to YouTube Live, right? Well, WebRTC has lacked that. The signaling layer has been left up to the implementer to decide how they want to do that. And people do it over different methods. What my colleague Sergio did, who's the CTO of Millicast, is we were implementing our own OBS version. We were implementing other tools as we were building them over the last few years. We got to a point where we were just tired of building these signaling, different ones for different providers. We're like, well, why don't we just create a standard? And he wrote a white paper that then he then submitted to the IETF, and it's currently being reviewed. And it should be hopefully approved by December this year, which will standardize that signaling layer so that all devices, whether it's an encoder, whether it's platforms talking to each other, let's say Millicast to Wowza, or even, um, it's more of a contribution protocol right now, but it will standardize that layer, which I think will make it much easier for hardware encoders and software encoders to add WebRTC capabilities to their platform, because they know that the work they're doing will work just as well on Millicast as it will for Agora or for Twilio or for any other WebRTC platform out there. They won't have to implement a, a unique um, signaling um, piece for all the different um, platforms. So I think that will make it easier and I think that will start a, a mini revolution. Uh, and the first platform to do this, so GStreamer has added uh, WebRTC capabilities into GStreamer and Osprey Video that makes the Osprey Talon uh, uses GStreamer as their kind of encode and streaming capabilities. And they're now in the process of adding WIP and adding WebRTC. And I think that'll be the first hardware encoder to actually offer an SDI capture, HDMI capture, to WebRTC with WIP as an output um, into Millicast or others. Now, you mentioned some other WebRTC platforms. Um, how do the various platforms out there compare? And are they all being, you know, kind of optimized or built for slightly different applications or workflows or, or you know, can, can you characterize that a bit? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll start with kind of the open source market because I think that's one that we contribute to a lot. And and our so our CTO Sergio, he is the uh, creator and the the kind of founder of Meduse. So it's M E D O O Z E Meduse Media Server. That's an open source media server available on GitHub. That is a kind of an SFU. So it allows you to capture WebRTC and RTMP and be able to then. Uh, send that WebRTC on to clients, right? 
And another one well-known one is Janus, which you're probably familiar with. So Janus um, is owned and, and run by a good friend of ours, Lorenzo Minero uh, in Italy. Uh, so that's another one that, that's there for free. Uh, there's also a lot of others that have been in the industry, like Corento is another one. Uh, there's a lot of the traditional media server um, pro technology providers. So Wowza is one example. They have a WebRTC imp implementation. Red5 has a WebRTC implementation. There's quite a few providers out there. What it comes down to when you're trying to actually implement a solution, if all you're trying to do is create kind of a Google Meet alternative and you're going to max out at maybe 10 or 15 concurrent people, you can do that with a true peer-to-peer -peer solution or just by putting one media server in between those 15, 20 concurrent people. Scaling that is actually very simple to do and very quick to, to deploy. And you can pretty much create one dedicated server, WebRTC server, for those users. And there's no transcoding that happens, especially if you just use native WebRTC. The SFU just does pretty much, a, it's a selective forwarding unit. It just forwards the media to the different peers that are attached to that media server. That's very different from what an MCU is, which is like a master control unit, which is how a traditional origin server works, like a Wowser or like a, a Red5. What happens when you want to actually scale this and be able to broadcast, like truly broadcast to hundreds, if not thousands, if not tens of thousands of concurrent people over WebRTC, this is when it starts becoming not trivial at all. And those of you who maybe have tried to do this know very, very quickly it becomes, a, you have to build your own WebRTC CDN. And that point, at that point, most people realize this is, we're getting away from what our SaaS product is and we're becoming WebRTC architectural um, people. And, and people who have done this with RTMP know that this is an issue as well, right? Back in the day, you might be better off using a vendor that does this. Millicast is obviously one of those, but there's others and they all kind of focus in different markets. So Agora, um, it's based out of China, but Agora became kind of famous for Clubhouse. If you guys remember the Clubhouse app that's launched this year and become quite predominant, it's an audio only workflow, but that uses the Agora stack. Uh, Twilio has been in the space for a while. Um, Twilio focuses, I think, a little bit more on the real-time collaboration, the RTC piece of this, trying to build um, like real-time video chat apps, right? Like a Google Me or or something similar to that. That's interesting because I don't think a Twilio. I I think a Twilio more about you know audio, but they're doing a lot of video. Yep, they're doing a lot of video. They focus, so kind of like Dolby.io as well. They're more focused on the audio client side of it, where they have a client quality and how many concurrent peers are attached to each viewer node. And I, I would assume a lot of the other vendors are, are very much in a similar space. Um, and then be able to then scale that through the cloud. So so Dolby.io, I think, is, is kind of competing, I think, with Twilio in that space. But Twilio has launched a live streaming interactive product as well. Um, to be honest, I've not tested it. I don't know to what limits they scale to. Um, I think as it relates to our company, you know, we, we've been able to test our platform up to like a million concurrent, uh, which is not easy to do with WebRTC. And in production, we've had some of our live auction customers uh, and live gambling customers um, do live streams that are in the uh, several hundred thousand concurrent per stream. Wow. Can you say how many servers were used in uh, this uh, kind of event? I'd have to get back to you on that, to be honest. But I would say, you know, obviously we run our solution in the cloud and, and we have the intelligence to be able to, we have like a directory API that, that spins up servers as needed and spins them down after events are over. And the way we scale that across our viewer nodes um, allows for this kind of scalability. So we use DigitalOcean as our cloud provider. The biggest limit for us is the cloud servers themselves, the throughput that's available on those servers. So most cloud providers out there have like a one gigabit per second network bottleneck, right? So so for us, because we don't actually process the media and transcode, uh, we just forward it on. It's it's not very CPU intensive or memory intensive. So really it all just comes down to network 
throughput. And with that, um, you know, if you if you do the math on it, right, you could see a two megabit per second stream. You know, divide that into one gigabit per second. That gives you a rough idea of what can be done with a little bit of a buffer in between uh, on the amount of concurrent viewers. But we do have kind of our own load balancing to be able to load balance across servers depending on quality and how many concurrent peers are attached to each viewer node. And I, I would assume a lot of the other vendors are are very much in a similar space. That's really interesting, you know, the, the fact that you can... I, I, I never thought that it's possible, you know, to use WebRTC for hundreds of thousands of uh, concurrent viewers. Uh, and, of course, they are interactive uh, because the delay is very low. That's really amazing. And I think it's, uh, you know, something that points uh, uh, to the future uh, of uh, how interactive applications are going, uh, are going to work. And it opens new market. And I think it's also very interesting what you said about commoditizing to zero versus providing a real value. So obviously, you know, spinning all of those uh, hundreds or thousands, I don't know how many servers, in order to support WebRTC to all of the users with low delay um, costs money. But with interactivity, you can uh, monetize the service and you can, uh, you know, you can get that back. So there, there is a market for this uh, type of streaming that's based on WebRTC. Yeah, and I think I think as as you know the streaming internet continues to evolve, um, I think there's these new markets that are really at their infancy. So think of like just the Internet of Things, right, and the the Nest camera, right, or uh, Amazon Chime, right, or like some of these tools. Or I remember working when I was at Wowza, we worked on a on a product with Siemens in Germany where they had an iRobot at home that also um, had a surveillance camera built in and worked as a surveillance tool. With those workflows, we had to use HLS to do that, which really didn't add a lot of value if you want to remote control something remotely. You know, think of an IP camera, right, that still uses RTSP, but you can't deliver RTSP natively to the web. So what do you do? You have to go back into HLS. It's latent. You can't control the camera in real time. And, and to that point, we, we, we had this um, really interesting event with Amazon Prime and NBC where they were using bird dog IP cameras and they use NDI over the cloud and then did a WebRTC conversion into a remote production suite. And they were able to do this uh, AVP beach volleyball circuit when, when we kind of came back from pandemic. Um, and they tried to limit the amount of people that were in venue. And I think that's becoming popular because obviously there's a huge cost associated with live event production, right? So being able to control that all remotely with a, a sub 500 millisecond latency technology um, through a web native production interface, you know, you saw Adobe just bought frame.io and that's even a asynchronous editing tool. What about a synchronous editing tool where you're trying to do everything in real time? Like just the, the opportunity there is just enormous, right? To create products around this and people are working in that space. But I think that's going to become more and more predominant. Um, also, I'm working a lot like in the drone space, people trying to control control drones remote control through 5G, like Verizon bought this company called Skyward, and they're building an SDK that can be built into agnostically into different drone manufacturers, DJI and Parrot and others. And what are they going to do to be able to remote control? They have to use WebRTC. There's no other protocol built for that use case, you know? So I think there's a lot that will come come from this. There's another really interesting company called Maestro, maestro.io, that is doing a lot of tools around finding new ways to monetize content that also requires a sub-second latency use case for, for real-time video. Um, and I think there, that whole e-commerce space is one that really hasn't even been explored on how we can you know, pair live events and live sports to monetization beyond the traditional monetization model of just doing a mid-roll ad, which is a very antiquated model that's been around for 100 years. There has to be a better way to create 
intelligent monetization schemes. And I think WebRTC also offers this as a, as a potential. So Drawer, I was just sitting here thinking, I think we better check Ryan's title. Is, is he actually a sales guy? Yeah, no. <laughs> because I I was I was not just having a a a forty five minute conversation with a sales guy. <laughs> no, not at all. Chief Revenue Officer, impossible. Why they they couldn't find a title that was available, so they gave you something that was kind of CTO was gone. So yeah. you know. <laughs> well, I think just to, just to defend myself, in all fairness, I, I I am a computer science major. I've I've been on the streaming and on the engi- on the engineering side for many years, product and engineering side. So well, it's super super obvious because uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> it's very impressive your your level of knowledge, and it's obvious you are passionate about WebRTC. Yes, you really. Have have a command uh, of, of the space and, you know, of WebRTC. So, you know, thank you for sharing all the details. It's really great. You know, it's interesting as we've been talking, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that a lot of us are saddled with, you know, I'll use the word legacy, uh, legacy formats and, and almost all of them, they started with, with a standard, but because of requirements of the time, they sort of got hacked and got modified and companies went off and, and, and built their own derivatives. And then as, as, as others in the industry start to adopt them, you know, then you end up 10, 12, 15, whatever, 20 years down the road. And all of a sudden it's kind of a, a, a quote unquote standard. And yet it's really not and then along comes WebRTC, which is a very clearly defined standard um, that we've been talking about. And people look at it and say, wow, we'd like to move to that. But it has, you know, it doesn't quite have all the features we need because we've hacked this other thing. And, you know, it can get a little bit uh, dicey. What do you see the roadmap as for, uh, for our audience, for those who are listening to this interview and they're going, yeah, we're with you. We, we actually would love to move to WebRTC or, you know, but we're just, we just feel like, like our hands are tied, you know, uh, well, what's a roadmap for the industry? Yeah, I agree with you. I think we've become so complacent with let's use the term legacy uh, workflows, that it's just become a standard. And anything that, that tries to mess with that because of the established players that are in the industry and also our own comfort right, with these workflows, it's stagnated a little bit, the innovation and, and the proliferation of some technologies that are actually better suited for quite a few use cases. I also think the, the, the biggest thing, speaking of, of HLS, you know, you have one vendor that is the gateway to to push that and of course yes they're, they're pretty open but at the end of the day it's completely up to apple what they decide to do with hls and having any vendor at the center of that there's just too much power concentrated in one place i think one thing that WebRTC has done right is it's a technology that was open sourced the committees that that actually form and decide on the the roadmap for WebRTC, it's contributed to by tens of thousands of people worldwide, by very established companies, all the major browser vendors, um, a lot of major you know webinar tools and communication platforms are contributing into it. Um, even at the FPGA and the actual hardware level, there are people involved in WebRTC. I think it's a good variety of the web merging with broadcast which is something that have been two separate worlds that finally WebRTC is creating this Venn diagram that are almost creating two concentric circles in between the web being the default way that we communicate 
through video, which has not always been the case with some of these legacy protocols. And I'm going to take it a step further, and, and this is a very bold statement, and maybe the actual qualifying amount of time needs to be adjusted, but I think the sentiment is still there. I think within five years' time, there will not be a hardware encoder in the market. And five years may be a little bit bold, maybe 10 years, but when you think about how everything now, you can do some things through a web browser that you couldn't do with a, a TV head-end, a $20,000 TV head-end two or three years ago, AV1 SVC being an example of that. All you need to do is be able to connect physical devices to a web browser, and the web browser now becomes the way that you encode and decode content across the entire internet. Not just that, with a standard that where no one's a gatekeeper, and with default support for that at both the encode and decode level on every single device that's manufactured in the world. There's no other technology that I know of that has that roadmap in place. And unless the industry starts adopting it and starts influencing it, they're going to be left behind, I think, and they're going to lose out to a lot of web-first platforms that are out there. And spending the last 20 years of my career in broadcast and streaming, I, I want to see this adoption because I think it's a natural fit to what um, a lot of the evolution of our industries is naturally happening as people try to evolve use cases to fit into traditional streaming. Um, I think WebRTC is well-suited for that. Yeah, so it's super interesting as you were talking about WebRTC and, you know, this decentralized vision that you threw out there. I believe it's Andreessen Horowitz put a thesis out that they are um, specifically targeting WebRTC companies to invest in. And they actually named WebRTC. It's called um, AI, WebRTC, Crypto and Full Stack Startups. So it's basically a recognition of what you uh, of what you just said. Yeah, I think the hard thing that's happening, and, and there's been a ton of acquisition that's happened pretty much in the last 12 months, all around WebRTC technology. So companies like Hopin. Oh, Hopin's absolutely incredible. <laughs> yeah, Dror, we need to get we we need to get uh, the the founder of Hopin on the podcast. Yeah, he needs to hop into the podcast. <laughs> Okay, Ryan, I think, uh, I think this was an amazing uh, conversation and you gave us very interesting insights into um, the present of uh, WebRTC and also the future of WebRTC and uh, you know, also broke a lot of myths around WebRTC. So I think it was super interesting for our listeners. So uh, we'd like to thank you for coming on the Video Insiders today. Well, it's an absolute pleasure. Uh, I've definitely known Mark for many years through the industry, and it's a pleasure to finally connect with you, Mark. And a pity that we can't connect at uh, NAB this year, but I am planning to go to IBC unless they cancel that. So uh, if any of you happen to be there, look me up. So I'll be around. Awesome. Well, Ryan, thank you for coming on the show. Really, really fabulous interview. You guys are doing some great work and uh, let's uh, keep tracking WebRTC. It's exciting. Thank you for listening to the Video Insiders podcast. If you'd like to appear on the show, just send an email to thevideoinsiders at beamer.com. That's B-E-A-M-R.com with a brief description on what you're working on and why you think it's interesting for our audience. This podcast is sponsored by Beamer Imaging. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity that they represent.